tonight. You doing well? <laughs> so good to see all of you. Welcome to the Essential Church Conference. This is a, a conference not only for leaders around the country, around the world, but right here in our own city. So I want all the people from the 719 to give a big shout right now. All the people. Yeah. All right. If you, uh, if you live anywhere out of Colorado, big shout right now, okay? All right. All right, if you live in Colorado, but not the 719, kind of left you out. Anybody else, Coloradans, that are not from the 719, right? Man, a small vocal minority. I like that. Good to see all of you. Welcome. This is a, a gathering that we have every year, and it's a highlight on my calendar because it's a chance for us to get together as leaders. Uh, so there are church leaders in the room. There are local volunteers in the room. There are parachurch leaders in the room. So it's a great collection of people and we're here to this week, uh, as we were praying about this conference, we believe that in tonight, all day tomorrow, and on Thursday, we're going to hear several things. Tonight, we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, tomorrow, Lisa Harper is going to join us in the morning, and she's going to be sharing her story of growing up and becoming a single woman and, and being single all of her life and, and being in ministry and being involved in the church. It's going to be powerful all day tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon, we've got a panel of leaders, a multitude of voices that will be speaking into marriage and family and what it means for the local church. And then tomorrow night is Pastor Jimmy Evans, who will be with us tomorrow night. He is the best speaker on marriage that I know. Uh, I was just thinking today that Pastor Jimmy Evans is probably the reason, one of the reasons that Pam and I have been happily married for 29 years uh, because he taught us so much. And he's going to be here tomorrow night. And then on Thursday morning, we have Pastor Kay Warren from Saddleback Church. She has a fantastic message uh, for marriages and families and the local church that you can't, you don't want to miss it. So I hope this is going to be an exciting time for you. I want to introduce, because we are talking about marriage tonight, I want you to be introduced to my bride of 29 years. My Pam, would you wave your, wave your hand or stand up and just say, hey, everybody, my wife, Pam. I know this is an old joke, but we did get married when we were 12. We're very, very young. We're way too young to be married 29 years. Thank you for saying that. I could feel that coming back from you. She looks, actually, people think that I'm married to a much younger woman, and Pam is, uh, looks about 30. I know that. And she's always looked that way. She's beautiful inside and out. So I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Proverbs. Now, I'm going to talk today, tonight, about a really weighty topic. It's a topic that I have, uh, I've never heard spoken on uh, until the Lord gave me this message five or six years ago. And I spoke it for the first time at a leader's event, and I think I shared it part of this on a Sunday morning at New Life, but it's a topic that I believe the church has to talk about more often. So the, the title is going to be uh, uh, weighty enough for you to absorb, but I'm going to try to answer a question that I believe all of us as pastors and leaders and volunteers, we need to learn how to answer this question. We need to have our eyes wide open. And here's the question. How do affairs happen. And all of us in this room, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I can almost guess that 100% of the people in this room, you or someone close to you has been adversely affected, even devastated by marital infidelity. It is a pandemic in our culture, and unfortunately it's a pandemic in the church. And when it happens in the church, it devastates congregations. It devastates the body of Christ. It, it is a, an attack of the enemy. I want you to think uh, tonight with me how beautiful the gift of marriage is to the church and to our lives. Pam and I, I was 22, Pam was 21 when we got married. And in the 29 years that we've been married, we have learned to serve one another. We've had to learn how to overcome offenses and hurts that we've caused toward one another. We've learned to be friends through the good times and bad times. We've had dark days and bright days. And all along the way, our marriage has revealed to us the nature, the character, and the power of God in our lives. We would not have discovered the essence of God in our lives if God had not brought us together. And that's not to say you can't do that when you're single. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow, okay? But I'm talking tonight about married people, about being married and what God does in the context of marriage. So tomorrow, 
We will tackle what God does in the context of singleness because God is at work in both places. God is powerfully at work in both places. But I've discovered that people fall into marital infidelity because they start believing a lie. And so tonight, I'm going to expose three great lies that our enemy is telling people in this room. They're telling your friends. They're telling the people that you love. They're telling your volunteers back at your church. These three lies... The reason they're so successful is because we keep believing them. So I want you to write these three things down. Three lies that we believe that lead us to marital infidelity. Here's lie number one is I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy. I'm not happy in this marriage. This marriage is not causing me happiness. Uh, it's not joyful. It's uh, sometimes difficult. So I'm going to get out of this because somewhere else there is a person who can make me happier than I am right now? That's a lie. I'm just saying this. I'm saying this to the strength that you're going to hear it from the enemy. But let me tell you something. That's a lie. I deserve to be happy. This person's not making me happy. And this is, this, this is too difficult. It's too hard. In other words, shouldn't marriage be easier? Shouldn't marriage be easier than this? This is the lie. We start believing these little nuances, these little lies that come to us. Here's a second lie. Another man or woman will make me happy. Well, I deserve to be happy. There's something about me that deserves to be happy. And out there on the horizon, another man or woman is waiting. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I got married too quickly. Pam and I were, I mean, we were babies when we got married. Nobody gets married at 22 and 21 anymore, but we're from the deep south where, you know, we went to high school, went to college, got married. That's what everybody did when we were young, and we got married young. And because we got married young, we've been able to grow up together. I mean, we were in our 20s. I mean, we were making all kinds of mistakes. We were being foolish. We were not handling our money well. We were all over the map. And But we, what happened in that first 10 years of marriage is that we discovered that we actually needed one another. And we had to work hard at it. And I can, I can look at a lot of times, multiple times in that first 10 years, that if Pam and I had not made up our mind to work hard at the marriage, we, we would not be married. But we made up our mind as a young married couple to work hard at it. And we, we didn't believe this lie. We didn't believe that there was somebody else out there that would make it easier on us. We were determined to plow through, work at it, and to, to put the hard work in to stay married. Here's the third lie. I married the wrong person, so I deserve to start over. See, all three of these lies are all really one big lie, that there's somebody else, someone else. I deserve to be happy. There's another man or woman who can make me happy. And I married the wrong person, so I deserve to start over. All of these are just a big lie that we start believing. And then, don't you look at the book of Proverbs with me. Proverbs 10, verse 9. Proverbs 10, verse 9. And look at this passage of Scripture. It says, the man of integrity walks securely. The person who's made up their mind to do the right thing for the right reason. The man who desires to walk securely. But he who takes Crooked paths will be found out. Now, this is an interesting phrase here. There's a path. In other words, it's not a quick exit. It's actually a, a, a path requires you to take a lot of steps. A path is talking about a journey towards something. I find that a very few people wake up in the morning one day and say, you know what, today I'm going to totally blow up my family. Today is the day... I'm going to throw it all away. Today is the day I'm going to find myself in an adulterous affair. I'm just going to wreck my church, wreck my home. I'm going to wreck everything about my life. Most people don't wake up and make that decision in one day. Actually, the decision to blow up your marriage is a path. It's a journey. It's multiple steps. It is a long disobedience in the wrong direction. To, to, to play off of Eugene Peterson's phrase. But it's, it's literally making small choices day after day after day, and the enemy looks for these opportunities. Now, I want you to understand that our, our enemy that we have, and if you're here today and you don't theologically believe that we have an enemy, this message is not going to help you. But I believe we have an enemy that hates our marriages. 
And he hates the marriages of leaders in the church. He hates the church. He hates the bride of Christ. He hates the bride and the groom that lead the bride of Christ. He hates people that lead the church and love the church. He hates the church and he hates the leaders who, who lead it. I'm telling you, our enemy wants to sidetrack. I know some super talented men and women who preach better than me, who lead better than me, who are smarter than I am, who have been tripped up by this lie. They have been tripped up by the lie that I just told you. And they didn't wake up one morning saying, I'm going to destroy everything. But what they took, they started taking journeys down a path. So what I'm about to give you tonight, is, uh, I promise you, if you'll write down the next 12 things that I tell you, you will use this a thousand times in the next 20 years of your pastoral ministry. If you're a married person here today and you're one of the volunteers, leaders in the church here, what I'm about to give you, you will use in your small group. You will use with close friends and family. You'll use this a thousand times if you'll write it down. And, and what I'm about to tell you has been studied and proven. This is not uh, conjecture. This is not hyperbole. This is not uh, some, uh, something that I've contrived. Actually, what I'm about to tell you has been studied and proven by marriage experts for a long time. Every person who ends up in a marital affair starts down the path of the 12 things that I'm about to give you. And let me say this, almost every person in the room has been at number three. Almost every person, every married person in the room has gotten to step three of this, of this process. I'm going to show this to you, okay? So here are the 12 steps that we take to get to a marital affair, the 12 steps that we take that, keep, that, that, that we end up in this place of destruction. Here's number one. And the first one is super important for you to understand. Number one, something makes you lean away. I want you to look at this. Something makes you lean away from your marriage. Now, all of us have been here. All right, all the married people, especially all the people who are in pastoral ministry, do you know there is a demon from hell who is specifically assigned to accompany you in your vehicle on the way to church? <laughs> come on, <laughs> all the married people in the room, right? I mean, come on, how many of you, let's just get, if you're really bold tonight, how many of you fussed on the way to the conference tonight? Come on, raise your hand if you're broke. Okay, four of you, the rest of you are lying. But there is, okay, right, thank you. You get a free book, any book you want, okay, for being honest. All right, the rest of you get nothing free. It's all double price, all right, from this point on. But there is a, there's something that happens. Pam and I were talking about this on the way to, to church tonight. We weren't fussing. We weren't. We weren't fighting. We were talking about how many times we've been on the way to church. On the way, like the scriptures are rich inside of us. We are rested. We are full of the Holy Spirit. We are ready to do ministry. We're ready, right? We're driving to church. And we get into fights about the craziest, most ridiculous, most demonic things on the way to church. On the way home from church, we are kissing and hugging and high-fiving. On the way to church, we're arguing and fussing and get on each other. Why? Because the enemy hates the message that we're carrying inside of us. The enemy hates the truth that has been embodied inside of us. And something comes along to make you lean away from your marriage. Every married person in this room, you've had moments where you didn't like the person you were married to. I always say, hey, I love Pam. Every day we've been married. I didn't like her a few days, though. There were a few days I didn't like her. And there's been several days she doesn't like me. I've loved her every day that I've said yes. But there are days that we get, we get sideways. We need to go to our corners, all right? That's a whole other sermon. But we know how to go to our corners and fight fair, right? You need to take a day off. I need to go away for a night. I need to go away and go do something else. But there are times when things make you lean away from your marriage, where you're not leaning into each other but you're leaning away. Oh, you remember when you really first liked each other? Come on. Where you would talk four hours on the phone at night. Remember that? I mean, you, and you woke up the next morning hoping that they would call you right back or you could finish that conversation the next morning where every date felt like a, you were the princess, he was the prince, and a shining armor came to pick you up and you went on these magical dates and that was when you were really leaning in and then you got married then you got kids, then you got in-laws, then you got poopy diapers, and then you got bad vacations, and then you, got, then you started not liking each other the way you used to like each other. 
And somewhere along the way, the enemy comes, and all, all he's trying to do is get you to lean away. He's not doing anything big. I'm not talking about a seductress showing up at your home. I'm talking about just little things making you lean away. Not like her. Not like him. Just a little bit. And then number two hits. And we've all been here, okay? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on any of these, all right? But just confess with me in your heart. It's good for you. Number two, there's an awareness of another person. Hmm. I'm mad at her. I'm upset with her. She's upset with me. And at that very moment, think about the strategic timing of this. At that very moment, another person you work with, another person in the school, another person somewhere in your life suddenly shows up that day. And they look great. They look great. They, they laugh at a joke that you told, that you've told that same joke to your wife 30 times, and she only laughed 20 times. And the last 10 times, she told you it wasn't funny. And, but you told this joke to this person, and they belly laughed. They loved it, right? And there's awareness. Here's what the enemy comes to you and says, that person would really appreciate you. This is only step number two I'm at right now. There are 10 more steps. But I want you to see the path that you start walking on. The first path is... I'm no longer, my attention, my affection, my primary affections are not toward my spouse. And for whatever reason, I have turned and I've leaned away from her and right there in front of me, I'm going to show this to you in Proverbs 10 in just a moment, okay? I'm going to be in Proverbs 5. I'm going to show this to you in just a moment, but right there in front of you is another person who smiles at you, who gives you a compliment that you haven't gotten from your spouse in a while. Have you lost weight? That looks great. That what you're wearing is really matches. Uh, that was really funny. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> All right, and here's number three, okay? Now, I've said almost every married couple's been to step two. Here's step three that most of you have been at. Most of us have been to step number three. So what happens next is those innocent meetings, that innocent meeting actually leads to a little flirtatious conversation. And you realize that something in your heart is not exactly right. You, you feel bad about it immediately. Because you know that if you take one more step, you're going to go down the slippery slope. But you feel good about talking to them. You feel good. That felt good to have that conversation. I have not felt that good talking to my spouse in a while. That felt good. And right away, listen very, very quickly, listen very carefully, okay? This is the moment where you better pray that three-word prayer that we just prayed a moment ago. Come, Holy Spirit. Let me just stop for a moment. You know why we pray that particular prayer? That prayer, that prayer has been prayed for thousands of years, a couple thousand years in the church. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's a long way off and you have to whistle him in. It doesn't mean, that's not what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit's standing right next to you and you better be aware of the Spirit's presence in your life and call for his help at that moment. That's what, this is what that means. Come, Holy Spirit. I am aggravated with my spouse. I, I notice another person. And we have a brief conversation that, that stirs something in my heart that, I, that feels good. It's flirty. And at that moment, if you don't stop and say, Father in heaven, you have sent me, my bride. You have sent me, my spouse. This is the person I'm married to. This is the person I'm in love with. And this is when you better get your phone out. And if you're, you better call her. You better text her. You better text him. You better make some kind of contact. You better pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Because step number four, listen, once you get to step number four, it can go from four to 12 in a matter of days. Most people, if they can stop themselves at this point, they don't ever reach the dangerous point. But if you don't, allow the Holy Spirit to come and you, you will start believing one of the lies I just told you. At that moment, I don't like my spouse. She's not making me happy. He's not making me happy. This other person seems interesting. This other person seems like she likes me. He likes me. He appreciates me. So it's not sexual. None of this is sexual. This is all about respect and love and appreciation and concern. It's about empathy even. Maybe they, weren't, they didn't empathize with me. Maybe they don't like the same stuff as me. Maybe this person mentioned that they like a TV program that they, I like, and my husband hates this TV program. They like Dancing with the Stars. I don't. 
Okay, that's not a problem at our house, all right? I actually have to tell Pam, if I watch a whole episode of Dancing with the Stars, that should count as a date night, right? Come on, all the guys in the room, say amen to that, right? That doesn't count? <laughs> I think it should, especially if I dress up and dance with her during the show. Does that count? If I put on something nice and we, d we dance with them? All right, that counts, all right, which I'm not going to do. All right, number four. All right, here's number four, though, and I want you to, I want you to see uh, yourself in a vehicle, okay? And you've crested the top of the hill. You're at the top of the hill now. One more rotation of the tires, and the nose of your car is headed down. Okay, number four is the last rotation of the tires before you head down the slippery slope. And in Colorado, we know what snowy snowbanks, what roads feel like going down a slip, slippery hill. Okay, step four is the last rotation of the tires before you go over the cliff. And I want you to catch this, I'm your pastor, and I'm telling you, I have sat in my office, and I'm not exaggerating this, dozens, and I, I started to say 100, that may be too many, but it's somewhere between dozens and 100 couples and had this conversation. And they've all told me, when I go through these 12 steps, they said, Pastor Brady, if someone had taught me this, I would have never gotten to step four. But once I got to step four, I could not stop. And that's why I'm telling you, you're about to crest the hill with step four. Okay, here's step four. You ready? Step four is meetings become intentional and planned. Meetings now become intentional. Now, it doesn't mean that both people have the same idea in their mind. In fact, usually there's only one person who is praying and the other person may be completely innocent of this. That the other person may have no awareness that you have in your heart intended to meet with them. You're now bumping into them on purpose. You know when they drop their kids off. You know when they're going to be somewhere. You have now studied their schedule. You know how to find them. And again, both parties are not working now. One person has bad motives. The second person may be innocent to this point. But meetings become intentional and planned. All right, number five. While in a group setting, oftentimes, uh, the, so that the, the meetings now are not necessarily one-on-one. -on -one. And this is why work environments, church environments, corporate environments are literally, uh, this is why it happens so often at work. This is why this happens so often in a church staff culture because you know how to find people. You know where they are. So in step five, while in these group settings, the two people begin to linger together and the conversations go from flirty to now you're asking questions about them. You're trying to get to know them. And so far, you can hide this because you sound just like you're interested in them. And you might be, you're asking questions, but in your heart, you are, you're, you're actually beginning pursuing them in a way. And you know this is happening. All right, but here's, here's the part that's dangerous is step number six. This is when you know you're in deep danger. Conversations shift to feelings. It's one thing to talk about facts. It's one thing to talk about biographies. Where are you from? What do you do? What do you like to do? What do you do for fun? Where'd you go on vacation? Tell me about your family. Tell me about your kids. What kind of dog do you have? What movies do you like? Those are all factual questions. Then, though, in the middle of this conversation, you start talking about your feelings. Emotions come into play. Again, one of the parties may be completely innocent at this point, but sooner or later, number six will determine whether both parties say yes to this relationship. Because most people of any kind of emotional maturity know that when you start talking about your feelings with another person, especially a person of the opposite sex, that that is the beginning of romance. That's the beginning of something deeper that can be uh, difficult. When you start talking about deep feelings, and oftentimes the feelings start talking about the, the brokenness in your marriage, just be really careful, listen, be very careful when someone else starts telling you about how broken their other marriage is. And they start asking you for guidance and help with their emotional baggage from their marriage. If you're not equipped as a pastor and a counselor to deal with that, this is the point where you put your hand up and say, I'm not the person you should talk to about that. 
Now, as a pastor, I have safeguards. I have these conversations a lot with people who come to me for pastoral counseling. And they come to me for help, and I want them to come to me for help. But I have safeguards in my life that keep me from falling into dangerous emotional conversations. Number one, I'm not flirting with them. I'm their pastor. Number two, I'm madly in love with my wife. There's nothing in my heart that's attaching myself to this, this conversation. So you can come to me as your pastor and say, Pastor Brady, I'm broken. My marriage is a mess. I have to talk to someone. And I have had conversations with men and women about the brokenness in their lives. But here's the boundaries I have. I don't talk to women by themselves about that. As soon as a woman comes to me and says, Pastor Brady, you're my pastor. I have marital brokenness. My husband's a jerk. My husband's whatever. I need some help. I'm broken. I say, absolutely. We're here to help you. Oftentimes, Pam, my wife, is right next to me when that happens. If Pam is not available, someone like Pastor Stephanie or Pastor Becky, another woman on our staff, is quickly summoned to my side. And I say, absolutely. We want to, we want to talk to you about that. We want to help you with that. We have the means necessary to help you with this concern. And right away, I involve another woman. Uh, now, if another woman's not around, have another person on your hip. Have another person around you. Do not let these conversations go too long without some safeguards in your life. Almost every, every pastor, all the pastors in the room, listen to me, almost every pastor that I've ever talked to who had an affair, you know how it started? With pastoral counseling. It, it was good motives. They were trying to help the person. They were trying to help, but something was broken in their life that they, weren't, they didn't reveal to anyone. They were leaning away from their own marriage. They noticed this other person who had needs in their life. And the enemy used the pastoral privilege and the pastoral connection to build a bond, an unholy bond between the pastor and the person he, was, or he or she was trying to help. Listen, right away, I involve other people quickly. Now, if it's a, another guy, if a guy comes to me and says, hey, I'm, uh, I'm broken, we'll sit down and talk, and, I'll, and I'm their pastor right away. Just be careful about these emotional connections that can start out as holy and pastoral, but can quickly take the leap into something that's not holy and is not pastoral. So it shifts the feelings. All right, now, number, number seven. Number seven, from six to 12 can happen in a matter of days, quite honestly. It may not. It may take a year, but it typically happens pretty quickly. Number seven, the two people have isolated meetings under the disguise of a legitimate purpose. Did you see the word here? Isolated. This, this is where the enemy does his work. I'm going to say something that I hope you never forget. The enemy does his best work in darkness. Anytime the enemy can isolate you, there's a difference between being alone and isolated. There's a huge difference. Isolated means no one else has access to me. Nobody knows. You know, when I, Pam and I believe in Sabbath and solitude and being alone. But in all those times, Pam knows where I am, who I'm with, what I'm doing. Loneliness and isolation means that I am by myself with no accountability. And there's a huge difference between being alone and being isolated. God asks us to be alone. God often asks us to come be alone with him. But God never calls us into isolation. And most people confuse isolation for being alone. Isolation is where actually the enemy does his work in people's hearts. This is where porn comes into our lives. This is where inappropriate relationships come into our lives because we have chosen to be isolated. We have isolated ourselves from the very thing that God wrapped our lives around for our protection. So number seven, these two people start having isolated meetings. And what happens with isolated, now there's a bit of deception with one or both parties. In other words, they tell their friends they're one place, but they're not. Isolation means that both parties, at, 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 by, by number seven, both parties are aware of what's going on. Nobody's being taken advantage of here. By number seven, both the man and the woman have put their cards on the table. And now they are isolating themselves and they're actually, this is where deception comes in. They start deceiving their friends, deceiving people. So isolated meetings happen under the disguise of a legitimate purpose. 
All right, number eight. Now, uh, number eight is uh, the two people have isolated meetings for pleasure. They, this is almost like a date, a clandestine date, a date that wasn't supposed to happen. And now both of them, listen, the people I know that have walked this out, they're feeling enormous. Here, here's the two things they're feeling at the same time. They're feeling enormous endorphins, adrenaline for being sneaky, and they're feeling enormous guilt, overwhelming guilt, and an overwhelming sense of, of adrenaline for getting away with it. You know, your body, your, the chemistry of your body at this point is you're not making, you're making stupid, the spirit of stupid has come and inhabited you. <laughs> this is a true thing. You're not acting, you're, you are not yourself. And a Snickers bar is not going to save it. All right, I'm just telling you, you are not yourself at this point. You are feeling this adrenaline rush of finding this new thing, this new person, this excitement. And at the same time, there, I, I, the pastors and the leaders I've talked to say, Pastor Brady, you would not believe the enormous shame and guilt that I'm feeling at that same moment. All right, number, where are we at? Number eight, number nine. Then uh, embraces become affectionate. Playful touching begins. Number 10, embraces become passionate. And then 11 and 12, uh, we're all adults in the room. This is when sex happens. And then verse uh, 12, not verse 12, but number 12 is when you began to, uh, is made public. It all, it's all comes out in the public. So number nine, embraces become affectionate, playful touching, embraces become passionate. Uh, number 11, sex happens. Number 12, it all comes out into the light. Now I want you to notice from number three to number 12 how quickly that can happen. Depending on how much uh, of the lie you've believed. It all starts with believing a lie. Everything that we do that is sinful is just because we believe a lie, right? The, a lie has come into our life. Right, so I want to I share, go now with me to Proverbs chapter 5. I'm just going to share two quick things with you uh, at the end of this, because I want you to, this is something that I want you to consider. Look at uh, number one is it will cost you, it will cost us more than we think. If you're going to go down this path, I want to tell you the truth tonight, okay? I'm your, I'm your pastor and I want to tell you the truth. If you choose to believe this lie and you choose to walk down this path, it will cost you more than we think. It will always cost us more than we think. Proverbs 5 is what, 4,000 years old maybe, 3,500 years old. And I want you to look at Proverbs 5 verses 7 through 14 and listen to this passage of scripture. It says, now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path. Remember what I read in Proverbs 10? That going down a crooked path, it's multiple steps, a multiple journey. He says, keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Listen to this. Lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. Verse 11, at the end of your life, you will groan. When your flesh and body are spent, you will say, how I hated discipline, how I hated those sermons where pastors were trying to keep me away from this, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. And as I'm studying this passage today, you know what pops up on the television in front of me is a picture of Bill Cosby getting put into prison today. I'm watching, I'm, I'm actually, I literally have the notes in front of me. And up on the screen, America's dad. 30 years ago, we all loved Bill Cosby. He made us laugh. He made us believe in family. And here this guy is being put into prison today. The look on his face is Proverbs 5 being played out in front of us. He's spent all of his money's gone to lawyers. His victims are about to get millions of dollars. Everything's gone that this guy's worked for at the end of his life. This is the cost. It'll, it'll cost you more than you think. 
Look at these phrases in this, in this passage I just read to you. Your best strength to others. Your best strength to others. Your years to the one who is cruel. That sounds like prison to me, right? Going to prison. Strangers feast on your wealth. People, in other words, you worked hard for your money and you're about to give it to someone you don't even know. Lawyers. And I love lawyers, okay? There's, I mean, they've got lots of good godly lawyers that knew a lot. I'm just saying these are people you have to hire. You don't know them. They're not your family. And hundreds of thousands of dollars are about to go to people you don't know. Your toil enriches another man's house. Uh, I, someone asked me uh, years ago, when Abram and Callie were just tiny babies, they were, I mean, two and, two and four years old, someone asked me, I was in a men's group, and someone raised their hand and said, Pastor Brady, what keeps you from going down this path of not of being, what, what keeps you being faithful to Pam? And I, without, without, without hesitating, there's two things. Well, I, I love God. I don't want to disappoint God. God been, has been faithful to me. And he's been faithful to me by sending me Pam. Why would I? I don't want to disappoint God. I don't. Pam's a gift to me from God. Why would I disappoint God? And then secondly, I said it without even hesitating. I said, and I don't want another man raising my kids. I don't want another man taking my daughter to prom and dropping her off. I don't want another man teaching Abram how to play baseball. I, I mean, I just went down a whole list. I'm going to be present. I'm going to be there. And another man's not going to raise my kids. This is what Proverbs says. And, we, and see, what the enemy says is you deserve to be happy when, in fact, he desires to take all your happiness from you. You think another man or another woman is going to make you happy. Actually, the enemy is setting you up to rob you of all the joy and the blessings that God has for us. You cannot regain it. It is, it is impossible. It's something forever changes in your life. Here's, here's, and it says your flesh and your body spent. The brink of utter ruin. Do you know that uh, about 75% of men who have extramarital affairs and divorce their spouse actually lose Almost all of them go bankrupt. It's true. You can, you can search it yourself. Almost all men who, who go through marital infidelity and end up, uh, both their spouse and themselves go bankrupt. Because about 75%. Or they, or they go through a, a huge period of utter ruin. In the midst of the whole assembly, being embarrassed and ashamed in front of everyone. This is weighty stuff, isn't it? Welcome to the first night of the Essential Church Conference. It gets better, right? Because here's, here's number two. Actually, the blessing is at home. What I've, what I've spent the first 40 minutes telling you about tonight is about a lie, but now I'm going to tell you the truth. Actually, the blessing that the Lord has for you, the joy and the fulfillment of your life is at home. And I want you to look at Proverbs 5 because in verse 15, the whole tone of the passage changes. In verse 15, look at this. Drink water from your own cistern. Notice that he's talking about all 7 through 14 is about the damaging side effects. But look at, then he talks about the blessings. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. He's talking about love. He's talking about unity. He's talking about home. And he says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, not in a younger wife <laughs> or a younger husband or a skinnier husband. No, rejoice in the wife of your youth. If you come to my office, and you're welcome to come while you're here, on my uh, bookcase, and it's almost the first thing I see every time I go to my office. There is a photo in my office. And I wish I'd put it up. I should have brought it and showed it to you. But just use your imagination. There is a photo of a six-year-old girl. She's in an uh, evening gown. She's on the stage at the Ruston, Louisiana Peach Festival. And it's the six-year-old Pam Neal. And she's got a little sash across her Peach Festival. 
And she is terrified. She's sitting on the stage like this. She's six years old. She's got little cute knobby knees that her legs just run forever out from under that dress, you know, and cute little knobby knees. And she's staring at the camera like this, and she's mortified. She does not want to be on the stage. She's gorgeous. She's six years old. That's the photo in my office. You know I have that photo there? I think it's cute, number one. But number two, it reminds me that I married somebody's little girl. And someone's going to marry my little girl who turns 18 in a couple of months, and she's really cute, and she's smart, and she doesn't put up with any crap from boys because I've taught her about that. So don't send your boy after unless he's ready to come meet me first because the blessing's going to be at her home too. Her home will be the place of blessing because our home is the place of blessing. I want you to look at this in uh, verse 19. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, and may you ever be captivated by her love. So I'm going to share, I'm going to share something with you in just three minutes here, okay? Write these things down. If I tell you how to affair-proof your marriage, okay? I'm going to give you some, something to think about and go, go out of here with tonight. Number, number one, so how do we affair-proof our marriages? How do we safeguard our homes? Number one, pray together. Pam and I prayed on the way over here tonight. We pray together. And we don't do it every single day, all the time. I mean, we're, but, but when we know, we know that we have to pray together for one another. And, we t- and if we don't pray together, we tell each other how we prayed for each other that day. I prayed for you. I'm praying for you. This is how I'm praying for you. But as often as we can, we pray together tonight on the way over here. Father, I pray over this meeting. I pray over every person there. And we pray together coming over here. There is something bonding. There is something that, that's beautiful. There is something spiritual. There's something emotional. There's something romantic about praying to God. The God who brought you together, hearing your prayers together. Think about this. The God who brought you together, hearing your prayers together. There's something powerful about that in that moment. Number two, cultivate your friendship. Pam and I are entering into a season of our life where both of our kids are are driving. We have a son in college. We have a daughter that's a senior in high school. And we are thrilled out of our mind that we are about to be almost empty nesters. And it's so expensive at our house right now with cars in college. I manage a fleet of cars. I'm sending two kids to college. I get all that, okay? But we're out of our mind thinking that we're about to have the house to ourselves. And we're about to be together. And listen, if you're not excited about that, then something's wrong with your friendship. We work at this. We, I'm friends with her. I like her. We were talking this week. I said, Pam, I, it's so great. You're going to get to travel with me more. You're going to get to be with me more. We're going to get to be together more. And you have to work. Be intentional about cultivating your friendship. Number three, I know this is tricky, and a lot of people may disagree with this, but I think you should talk openly about your temptations. Talk openly about it. Because, I, again, the enemy does his best work in the dark, and I, I know that there are some counselors who say there should be some things you tell your, your guy friends and there should be some things you tell your wife. I, 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 can, I can leave that open for debate. I can tell you guys, listen, Pam knows everything about me. She has access to my text. She has access to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. She sees every single email that comes to me. There's not one communication that comes to me that Pam doesn't see or my assistant Kelly doesn't see. There, is, there are no secrets coming to me. It is impossible to secretly contact me. I'm never by myself. I'm never alone. I don't travel alone. I don't walk around alone. I'm, I'm not by myself. And it's not because I'm super weak. It's just because I'm super smart. I'm telling you. I'm trying to be smart. And it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of being smart. The enemy wants to take me down. The enemy wants to damage the church. He hates this place. He hates our marriage. He hates me because I love the church and I love you. He hates me for that. And you strike the shepherd, you'll scatter the sheep. And I'm determined not to be stupid. Now listen, all the, all the men in the room, look at me, okay? This is not scientific. It's based on my... My, purely my observation. 
Most marital affairs happen between 45 and 55. It's the decade of stupid. <laughs> you just listen. Next time one of your friends confesses or you hear about a pastor falling, it's almost always between 45 and 55. You know why? Because we get bored and we get lazy and we start playing it. We don't play it smart like we used to. We become successful and we think we're bulletproof. In the year that kings, in the spring of the year when kings went off to war, David stayed home and let Joab take the army out. And that's when he fell in with Bathsheba because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He got bored. He got complacent. And he didn't have anyone around him. All of his friends, all of his buddies, all of his people that were holding him accountable went off to war and left him alone. And I'm telling you, it's a decade of stupid. And you know how old I am? I'm 51. So for the next four years, I'm going to be really, really smart. And even smarter after that. So talk openly about it. Tell, I tell Pam, listen, I tell Pam when things, when, if we've leaned away from each other, we talk about it. Don't, this is what I believe the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your, on your disagreements, on your anger. Don't let the sun go down between the two of you. It doesn't mean you can't go to sleep and talk about it the next day, because oftentimes that's the best thing. What he's saying is don't let a period of time go by where you're not having conversation. Pam and I address the issue. We do not ignore problems in our marriage. We don't ignore it. We don't act like it'll go away. We don't sweep things under the rug at our house. People ask me, who holds you accountable, Brady? And without hesitating, number one on my list is Pamela Neal Boyd. The voice of God sounds like Pamela Neal Boyd to my life. Because she tells me, and she's my biggest fan, and she's my most honest critic. Listen, most, most spouses either think of their spouse way too highly or way too lowly. Very few of us have an, have an honest opinion about each other. But Pam is my biggest fan, and she's my most honest critic. And because she's my biggest fan before she's my critic, I can trust her criticism. So you can't just be a critic to each other. You better be each other's fans and then be the most honest critic that you have for one another. All right, here's the last thing is praise one another. Brag on each other. If you're not every day, at least multiple times in the week, if you cannot give sincere compliments to one another, and even when you're leaning away and you're mad, you have to have these conversations about what you appreciate about each other. Constantly talking to each other about why you love them. How do, why, and if you can't think of anything, why don't you marry them in the first place? Then tell them that. You know why I married you? Now, none of that may have come true, okay, in the last 30 years, but at least tell them why you married them, all right? <laughs> I married you because I thought you'd be rich, but that hadn't worked out. <laughs> I married you for money, and I thought I'd fall in love with you, and neither one's happened. But thank God, we're married, right? <laughs> Pam tells me, I married you for money, thought I'd fall in love with you, and nothing's happened, right? Well, listen, praise one another. Talk about it. And, and listen, when you're around other people, praise them in front of each other people. You know what the biggest turnoff for Pam and I when we're around other couples is when other couples criticize them to us. That is a huge turnoff for us. We don't hang out with couples like that. If they can't honor one another in front of us, I, that's just not a spirit and a presence we want around our lives. We want people who are working out their issues, who honor one another in front of each other the way we honor each other. Even if we were fussing on the way to the lunch, when we get out of the car in front of you, we're not going to fuss to each other in front of you. We're going to work it out after the lunch. We're going to smile and bless and encourage one another. And when we get back in the car, I can hear the door slam. Pow! Now we need to talk again about that. <laughs> We've all been there, right? All right, I want you to stand with me tonight. Has this been okay? You been all right with this? Come on up. I want um, I, um, when we come to a conference, when you come to an essential church conference, we're going to talk about real things that really matter. And this really matters in the church. And I'm going to invite my wife, Pam, up to the stage because uh, Pam and I just felt tonight that we wanted to pray for you as a couple. And uh, I'm so grateful for Pam. She is she's my best friend, and I love her. So, Pam, come on up with me, and we're going to pray for you and uh, together. And I, I, um, I want you to, if you're here with your spouse, you take their hand with you. Uh, just take their hand. If you're not, go there in your, in your mind. If they're not here with you, 
I want you to imagine yourself holding their hand. And I want you to lean in a bit. And I don't know what has caused you to lean away from each other, but I suspect your marriage is like this from time to time. You're leaning toward, leaning away. But tonight, I want you to lean toward them a bit. And before you go to bed tonight, if you're with them, I want you to, I want you to praise them. I want you to bless them. I want you to speak life over them. Speak life over your spouse tonight before you go to bed. Just say something to encourage them, to comfort them, to strengthen them. And that's the essence of the prophetic gift. That's the essence of the Holy Spirit is to strengthen, to encourage, and to comfort. And here's what I'm going to, I'm going to prophesy over you tonight. I believe this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to speak this over you. That not one couple in this room, there will not be one couple in this room that ever believes the lie of the enemy. There will not be one couple in this room who finds themselves looking for happiness in any other place except for their home. And I speak that over this crowd tonight. I speak this over the group that every married couple in this room will finish well. You're going to finish strong. You're going to get to the finish line of your life and your marriage full of life and full of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And you're going to fall in love again. So maybe some of you need to fall back in love again. Maybe you need to encourage one another. Maybe you need your heart needs to come alive again. That's what I'm going to pray for you tonight. Is that okay if I do that? So just turn your hand, hold hands with your spouse and lift the other hand like this. Father in heaven, we come tonight because you are the one who called us into marriage. You're the one who created our home. You built our home. You established our home. And Lord, we thank you tonight that there is grace. Lord, grace for every failure in this room. Father, I thank you tonight that not one person, I pray, will walk out of here hopeless. But Father, they'll be filled with courage and hope. They'll be filled with the courage that you are right there with them, that you can restore every good thing. You can restore their marriage. You can restore their love. You can restore their friendship. And Lord, if they have made failures, if they are failing, Lord, you can come right now. I pray right now that you would come to them and encourage them and call them back to a place of wholeness. Call them back to a place of, of strength in their marriage. Father, I bless you and I thank you that in this room there is, there is a long life together. There is the covenant of marriage. I just see tonight that there's long, there are thousands of years of faithful marriage in this room. Thousands of years of remarkable marriages springing forth in this room tonight. Thousands of years. Generations will look back on your marriage. Listen to this. Generations ahead of you will look back on your marriage and call you blessed. Generations ahead of you will look back on your marriage and say that was the moment in our family's history where our mom and our dad decided to stay married and it has changed the, the, your children, it will change your grandchildren, it will change your great-grandchildren, and a thousand years from now it will mark your family's lineage and history because of your faithfulness, your decisions tonight. That's how, that's how important this moment is right now for many of you. So Lord, we decide tonight, we decide tonight to lean in to the wife of our youth, to the husband of our youth. We decide tonight to knit our hearts together, to pray, to cultivate our friendship, to talk openly, to praise one another. We're deciding tonight that you're going to set us free from the lie that the enemy wants us to believe. And you're going to expose us to the truth of your love and of your grace. And Father, we thank you and we bless you. We bless the name of the Lord. Amen.